0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 on The Creature Called Man Chapter 6 The Demons and the Philosophers Part 1 I have dwelt at some length on this imaginative sort of paganism which has crowded the world with temples and is everywhere the parent of popular festivity, for the central history of civilization, as I see it, consists of two further stages before the final stage of Christendom. The first was the struggle between this paganism and something less worthy than itself, and the second the process by which it grew in itself less worthy. In this very varied and often very vague polytheism, there was a weakness of original sin. Pagan gods were depicted as tossing men like dice. And indeed, they are loaded dice. About sex especially, men are born unbalanced. We might almost say men are born mad. They scarcely reach sanity till they reach sanctity. This disproportion dragged down the winged fancies and filled the end of paganism with a mere filth and litter of spawning gods. But the first point to realize is that this sort of paganism had an early collision with another sort of paganism, and that the issue of that essentially spiritual struggle really determined the history of the world. In order to understand it, we must pass to a review of the other kind of paganism. It can be considered much more briefly. Indeed, there is a very real sense in which the less that is said about it, the better. If we have called the first sort of mythology the daydream, we might very well call the second sort of mythology the nightmare. Superstition recurs in all ages, and especially in rationalistic ages. I remember defending the religious tradition against a whole luncheon table of distinguished agnostics and before the end of our conversation every one of them had procured from his pocket, or exhibited on his watch chain, some charm or talisman from which he admitted that he was never separated. I was the only person present who had neglected to provide himself with a fetish. Superstition recurs in a rationalist age because it rests on something which, if not identical with rationalism, is not unconnected with skepticism. It is at least very closely connected with agnosticism. It rests on something that is really a very human and intelligible sentiment, like the local invocations of the Newman in popular paganism. But it is an agnostic sentiment, for it rests on two feelings. First, that we do not really know the laws of the universe. And second, that they may be very different from all that we call reason such men realize the real truth that enormous things do often turn upon tiny things when a whisper comes from tradition or what not that one particular tiny thing is the key or clue something deep and not altogether senseless in human nature tells them that it is not unlikely this feeling exists in both the forms of paganism here under consideration but when we come to the second form of it we find it transformed and filled with another and more terrible spirit. In dealing with the lighter thing called mythology, I have said little about the most disputable aspect of it, the extent to which such invocation of the spirits of the sea or the elements can indeed call spirits from the vasty deep. Or rather, as the Shakespearean scoffer put it, whether the spirits come when they are called. I believe that I am right in thinking that this problem, practical as it sounds, did not play a dominant part in the poetical business of mythology, but I think it even more obvious, on the evidence, that things of that sort have sometimes appeared, even if they were only appearances. But when we come to the world of superstition, in a more subtle sense, there is a shade of difference, a deepening and a darkening shade. Doubtless, most popular superstition is as frivolous as any popular mythology. Men do not believe as a dogma that God would throw a thunderbolt at them for walking under a ladder. More often they amuse themselves with the not very laborious exercise of walking around it. There is no more in it than what I have already adumbrated, a sort of airy agnosticism about the possibilities of so strange a world. But there is another sort of superstition that does definitely look for results, what might be called a realistic superstition. And with that, the question of whether spirits do answer or do appear becomes much more serious. As I have said, it seems to me pretty certain that they sometimes do. But about that, there is a distinction that has been the beginning of much evil in the world. Whether it be because the fall has really brought men nearer to less desirable neighbors in the spiritual world, or whether it is merely that the mood of men, eager or greedy, finds it easier to imagine evil, I believe that the black magic of witchcraft has been much more practical and much less poetical than the white magic of mythology. I fancy the garden of the witch has been kept much more carefully than the woodland of the nymph. I fancy the evil field has even been more fruitful than the good. To start with, some impulse, perhaps a sort of desperate impulse, drove men to the darker powers when dealing with practical problems. There was a sort of secret and perverse feeling that the darker powers would really do things, that they had no nonsense about them. And indeed, that popular phrase exactly expresses the point. The gods of mere mythology had a great deal of nonsense about them. They had a great deal of good nonsense about them. In the happy and hilarious sense in which we talk of the nonsense of Jabberwocky or the land where the Jumblies live. But the man consulting a demon felt as many a man has felt in consulting a detective, especially a private detective, that it was dirty work, but the work would really be done. A man did not exactly go into the wood to meet a nymph. He rather went with the hope of meeting a nymph. It was an adventure, rather than an assignation. But the devil really kept his appointments, and even in one sense kept his promises, even if a man sometimes wished afterwards, like Macbeth, that he had broken them. In the accounts given us of many rude or savage races, We gather that the cult of demons often came after the cult of deities, and even after the cult of one single and supreme deity. It may be suspected that in almost all such places the higher deity is felt to be too far off for appeal in certain petty matters. And men invoke the spirits because they are, in a more literal sense, familiar spirits. But with the idea of employing the demons who get things done, a new idea appears more worthy of the demons. It may indeed be truly described as the idea of being worthy of the demons, of making oneself fit for their fastidious and exacting society. Superstition of the lighter sort toys with the idea that some trifle, some small gesture such as throwing the salt, may touch the hidden spring that works the mysterious machinery of the world. And there is, after all, something in the idea of such an open sesame. But with the appeal to lower spirits comes the horrible notion that the gesture must not only be very small, but very low. That it must be a monkey trick of an utterly ugly and unworthy sort. Sooner or later, a man deliberately sets himself to do the most disgusting thing he can think of. It is felt that the extreme evil will extort a sort of attention or answer from the evil powers under the surface of the world. This is the meaning of most of the cannibalism in the world. For most cannibalism is not a primitive or even a bestial habit. It is artificial, and even artistic, a sort of art for art's sake. Men do not do it because they do not think it horrible, but on the contrary, because they do think it horrible. They wish, in the most literal sense, to sup on horrors. That is why it is often found that rude races like the Australian natives are not cannibals, while much more refined and intelligent races, like the New Zealand Maoris, occasionally are. They are refined and intelligent enough to indulge sometimes in a self-conscious diabolism. But if we could understand their minds, or even really understand their language, we should probably find that they were not acting as ignorant, that is, as innocent cannibals. They are not doing it because they do not think it wrong, but precisely because they do think it wrong. They are acting like a Parisian decadent at a black mass. But the black mass has to hide underground from the presence of the real mass. In other words, the demons have really been hiding since the coming of Christ on earth. The cannibalism of the higher barbarians isn't hiding from the civilization of the white man. But before Christendom, and especially outside Europe, this was not always so. In the ancient world, the demons often wandered abroad like dragons. They could be positively and publicly enthroned as gods. Their enormous images could be set up in public temples in the center of populous cities. And all over the world the traces can be found of this striking and solid fact, so curiously overlooked by the moderns who speak of all such evil as primitive and early in evolution, that, as a matter of fact, some of the very highest civilizations of the world were the very places where the horns of Satan were exalted, not only to the stars, but in the face of the sun. Take, for example, the Aztecs and American Indians of the ancient empires of Mexico and Peru. They were at least as elaborate as Egypt or China, and only less lively than that central civilization which is our own. But those who criticize that central civilization, which is always their own civilization, have a curious habit of not merely doing their legitimate duty in condemning its crimes, but of going out of their way to idealize its victims. They always assumed that before the advent of Europe there was nothing anywhere but Eden. And Swinburne, in that spirited chorus of the nations in Songs Before Sunrise, used an expression about Spain in her South American conquests, which always struck me as very strange. He said something about Her sins and sons through sinless lands dispersed and how they made accursed the name of man, and thrice accursed the name of God. It may be reasonable enough that he should say the Spaniards were sinful, but why in the world should he say that the South Americans were sinless? Why should he have supposed that continent to be exclusively populated by archangels or saints perfect in heaven? It would be a strong thing to say of the most respected neighborhood. But when we come to think of what we really do know of that society, the remark is rather funny. We know that the sinless priests of this sinless people worshipped sinless gods, who accepted as the nectar and ambrosia of their sunny paradise nothing but incessant human sacrifice accompanied by horrible torments. We may note also in the mythology of this American civilization that element of reversal, or violence, against instinct of which Dante wrote, which runs backwards everywhere through the unnatural religion of the demons. It is notable not only in ethics, but in aesthetics. A South American idol was made as ugly as possible, as a Greek image was made as beautiful as possible. They were seeking the secret of power by working backwards against their own nature and the nature of things. There was always a sort of yearning to carve at last, in gold or granite, or the dark red timber of the forests, a face at which the sky itself would break like a cracked mirror. "'Tis the gift to be simple. "'Tis the gift to be free. "'Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. "'And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight." When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.